0: All right, let's make our way back to our seats I want to pray one more time just asking God for his help as we open the Bible together God I do uh I do ask Lord that you would meet us in a fresh way as we as we preach the word as we listen to your word and um, God I, I know you have a message for us today and uh God, we just want to still ourselves and, and listen to you, God, from the Scriptures. Uh, Lord, I know we always come with different things on our minds today and every Sunday, and sometimes it's work, sometimes it's family, sometimes it's money. Um, and, God, we, we, just, um, we just bring them before you, Lord, and, and ask that you would uh, just uh, really work in our hearts in these ways. Today in particular, God, uh, as we look at, at a tougher passage in Scripture, God, um, Lord, I pray you give us soft hearts, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see what you want us to hear and see and learn, O oh Lord. God, we want to have a teachable spirit. And Lord, I know there are always, as we gather each Sunday, there are always some among us, Lord, who just are really struggling and maybe not even, don't, don't even know you, Lord, and they're just searching out life, they're trying to figure things out, and, and God, you're so faithful to meet us where we're at, and for those who are in that place today, where they don't know where they're at with their faith. They don't know what to believe. Maybe they're confused. Maybe they're searching. Lord, I pray that you would implant a seed into their heart, that you would water and cause to grow and produce faith, O oh Lord. Do this so that you would get all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Um, I like watching sports. Uh, I, I enjoy sports quite a bit, actually. And I'm always intrigued when there's an athlete that previous teams look over and some team takes a chance or maybe they just pick them up because they need a roster spot to fill. And a year or two later, this athlete becomes like a star. Don't you love those stories? And and this person who went from a nobody becomes a somebody and they they all of a sudden are on the all-star team. They're putting all-star numbers. And without fail... People are watching their game, their their athletic abilities, and they never doubt whether or not they can do what they're doing because it's in plain sight. They're seeing the guy hit the shots. They're seeing the person hit the ball far. They're seeing the the guy run fast. They're, They're seeing it happen. So the question is not if he's actually gotten better, but the question they ask is how. How is he able to do this? Now, we've seen in our day and age enough of athletes who've gotten better overnight through performance-enhancing drugs. We've seen them use these PEDs, these steroids, and they become phenomenal athletes until they take a drug test, and then they realize, wait, this guy's been cheating all along. This is why he can hit the ball a mile. And so so when when an athlete gets better because of that, they they don't get much praise for that. In fact, we're like, this guy's a phony. He's a cheater. On the other hand, when you see the athlete... And you ask, how did he get so good? And you see his workout regimen. And you see he gets up early in the morning at the crack of dawn to run. And then he gets to the gym to work out. And then he's controlling his diet. And before you know it, he's, becoming, he's being able to excel as an athlete because of his rigorous work ethic. That athlete, we say, man, that guy's to be praised for his athletic abilities and his commitment to the sport. And so we have these two components And we see that throughout life, even in a race car driving. When we see a race car crash in NASCAR, we we don't ask, did the crash happen? It's, It's there. But we ask, how did it happen? When there's a house on fire, we're not asking, is the house burning? We ask, how did it get on fire? When there's a company that's excelling and they're opening up stores everywhere, we're not asking if they're prosperous. We're asking, how did they get there? So the question of how is an important question. It's even important with things that are in very much plain sight. You know, in Jesus' day, this was the question that surrounded him. It wasn't if Jesus was doing miraculous and powerful things. The question was, how was he doing this? It was in plain sight for everyone to see. They saw the miracles he was doing. They saw the authority he had over demonic spirits. And so people, nobody was asking, did he really just feed 5,000 people? No one asked, did he really make a paralyzed man walk? No one asked, did Jesus really raise the dead? But the question they asked was, how was he able to do that? That's an important question. That's an important question. How could Jesus do that? How was Jesus able to perform supernatural things. Either he did it from the power of God, and some might ask, well, maybe he just did it by his own strength. But if it's supernatural, there's no way he could do it on his own strength. So basically, we're left with the conclusion, either Jesus was doing the things he did by the power of God, or by the power of Satan. Both supernatural. One is true, and one is evil and wicked. And that's the question people began to ask in Jesus' day, especially the religious leaders that had a hard time with him. And what we're coming to today is a passage I jumped over last week because I wanted to devote a whole sermon to it. And it might be one of the most difficult statements that Jesus makes in the entire Bible. It might be one of the greatest warnings Jesus gives throughout all of his life, and we get the pleasure of talking about it today. So I'm looking forward to it. But what we're going to see is a few things, and I want us to take away. It's going to feel a little different than some of my other messages because we're going we're to have to really think through some of the, the depth of what's taking place and then begin to say, okay, what does this, what does this mean now as I process these truths? We're going to see that God takes his glory very seriously, and we should too. God is no chump. God is not one who's okay with people looking at Him and mocking His power and authority. We're going to see that Jesus' miraculous and powerful works do demand some sort of conclusion from you and I. We've got to make a decision about what we think about what Jesus is doing. We're going to see that some people have chosen to harden their hearts against God and against Jesus. And these hardened hearts or is what we do to push Jesus away. And we saw this last Sunday that all of us have a choice to make. Will we harden our hearts or not? I want us to see in this message just how badly we hate sin and be grieved by it and be grieved when we see people who are stuck in a bad situation. And ultimately what I want us to see is the importance of opening the Bible and really working hard to understand it. Because there will be times... Well, you open it up and you're like, I just don't get what's being said. Because in this passage, Jesus says to those who oppose him, he says, all other sins will be forgiven except for the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That will be judged of an eternal sin. And so we're forced to ask, what does Jesus mean when he says that there is a sin that he will not forgive? And we love to talk about the grace of God. And we're going to come full circle at the end of this message. But I want us to wrestle here. I want us to wrestle with the text. And I'm going to give a, an unashamed advertisement here. Because next month, we're going to begin in our real community groups to learn how to dissect the Bible more in depth. And we're going to look at a strategy for how to do that. And we're going to take a Saturday in the month of May to devote to learning to study the Bible with a more focused ability because we've got to be able to handle hard passages like this, even warnings like this. The other thing is, I want to say is, I don't want to soften the warning. Sometimes you read something that makes you feel a little uncomfortable, and you want to explain it away to kind of just get it out of your mind. But when God gives us a warning in the Bible, to make it softer is to remove it of its power. Warnings are meant to be warnings. When you're driving around in Puerto Rico or some other mountainous place, and you see a sign that says sharp turn ahead and you're on the mountain, you got to heed that warning because if you don't, there's going to be grave consequences. God gives us warnings in a similar way. And though they might make us feel a little uncomfortable and make us wrestle with the passage, we've got to let the sting hit us a little bit and discern where God wants us to go from there. So I'm going to read our passage in the book of Mark, chapter 3, verses 22 through 30. And we say this every Sunday, but again, if you do not own a Bible, there is one in the pew in front of you. And we would love for you to have that one, to keep it, because we want to put the Bible in your hands. And if you own a Bible and you have it, please bring it every Sunday. Please bring it, even if we have it in the pews in front of us, bring it every Sunday so you can mark it up, you can write in it, you can circle things, you can underline, you can take notes. And it just helps us with our, our retention of what God is teaching us. So here we come to the book of Mark, chapter 3, verse 22. This passage takes place in the midst of Jesus being received by some, rejected by others. His own family thought he was crazy, literally. And here the religious leaders in Jesus' day confront him. He had just healed a man who was uh, possessed by a demon. Mark doesn't talk about it, but Matthew does in the Gospel of Matthew. And what we see is the scribes, the religious leaders, they start questioning not the if Jesus did it, but the how Jesus did it. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus called them to him and said to them in parables, this is what Jesus said, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty Of an eternal sin, verse thirty. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. We're going through the book of Mark here, and we started in chapter one, verse one. And our ambition is to walk through it, verse by verse, over the next year and a half or so. And we'll take different breaks as we've done already, but we're going to work through it because we said that this book is helpful for us to learn how to grow, to become, to be, to grow as a follower of Jesus and to then help others grow in that same journey. But when we work through the Bible like this, verse by verse, we come to some hard passages. <clears throat> passages that I might not say, you know what, I want to preach on this one on Sunday. But I'm grateful for it, and I'm grateful for you that we get to learn and open God's word here together. Here we have a great warning that's confronted, that Jesus confronts the religious leaders. But before we get to the warning, we need to backtrack. We need to find out what's going on here. <clears throat> We we need to put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of those days, so to speak. It says that some scribes came down from Jerusalem. Scribes were religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were given the responsibility of making sure people upheld to the Old Testament scriptures. That was their responsibility. And as we've seen week in and week out, A lot of these people began to take these laws, put laws upon laws, and became very oppressive. And people felt very bound. And Jesus came to bring freedom from sin and from the law and bring good news. Well, naturally, these people didn't like Jesus because he went against what they were trying to impose. Furthermore, Jesus had people who followed him, and they got jealous of Jesus. In fact, that's ultimately what led them to crucify Jesus. We see in chapter 3, verse 6, back up a little bit. It says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. So we see that there is a, a concerted effort on how to kill Jesus this early on in his ministry. And these scribes were part of those people who hated Jesus. They hated the fact that people followed him. They hated the fact what he taught. And they hated the fact that they could not figure out how he did what he did. So these, these scribes got together, and they began to figure out, okay, we see Jesus is healing people. We see he's doing miracles. How is he doing this? Clearly, this man can't be of God because he's not siding with us. So then where is he coming from? We see he's doing supernatural things, so he's not doing it by his own strength as a human being. And so they make this conclusion that he's not working under the authority of God, but he's working under the authority of Satan himself. And they say here that he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, this is interesting. They mention this man, Beelzebul, this demonic being. And not much is known about Beelzebul, but one thing is that we see in the book of 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, that Beelzebul was the god of another people group. He was the god in a place called Ekron. And so we know that that other people worshipped this God called Beelzebul. And we see in the Bible that every other God other than the true God himself is a God who's got a mask on, if you will. Because behind that mask is not a divine being, but a demonic influence. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. We see in, in 1 Corinthians 10 that Paul says that people worship demons when they worship other gods. And so Beelzebul became synonymous with a demonic influence. And so what they're saying here is that Jesus is working under demonic influence. But not only that, they take it up a notch and say, by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. So not just by a demonic influence, but by the top dog, if you will, by, by the main demon. And accordingly as we see in the Bible, that the leader of the demonic forces is Satan himself. So as we understand here, this is what the people are saying. They're saying Jesus is possessed by Satan, and that is how he is doing the things he is doing. I want us to learn a little bit about Satan so we can understand the the gravity of their conclusion. Who is Satan? Satan. How does he work? What is he about? Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17, give us a window on what took place before God brought man to this earth. See, God had created this earth. He had created angelic beings. And he had one angelic being in particular that had particular authority and power. He was a cherubim, one who was there in the presence of God. And Ezekiel chapter 28 discusses what took place there in the heavens during this time. Now, I don't have time to unpack that passage for us, but we see here, Ezekiel is helping God's people understand that Satan is influencing other world leaders, and ultimately, what God is saying is, behind these world leaders is the devil at work himself. And here's what God says of this uh, demonic influence. He says of Satan Ezekiel 28, verse 12, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. What we see here is that God is describing something that took place in the heavens where this cherubim, this this angelic being was there who was beautiful and majestic but chose to rebel against God because of his pride. And God cast this angelic being out of the heavens and to this earth and the under earth. And that angelic being we've come to know as Satan. And so there Ezekiel describes his fall And from that point forward, Satan has been about one thing, and that is to steal God of his glory and destroy God's creation. Peter says in 1 Peter 5a, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John 10 verses 9 through 11 Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, but the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says that Satan is about our destruction. We saw last week in John 8 that he calls Satan a murderer and a father of lies. This is who Satan is. One who was prideful against God who now hates God, hates what God's about, hates God's creation, and wants to steal and kill and destroy every one of us. That's Satan. That's the one they say fills Jesus. We also see of Satan that his destruction is certain. In Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10, we find out he will be cast into the lake of fire one day. But between now and then, He seeks to wreak havoc on this earth, pulling people away from God. And so hear this. When they're saying that Jesus is in league with Satan, they're saying that Jesus is trying to pull people away from God. That Jesus wants to destroy us. He wants to kill us. He wants to steal us. Know this, family. Satan is never about anything that brings God glory. Satan always advocates for your misery. Satan is in favor of whatever involves your destruction, and he hates what God loves and loves what God hates. This is Satan. This is the one, they say, has filled Jesus. Now, as we see, family, God is undeniably at work among us, always. Always. Many of you are here today as a testimony of what God can do to change and save a life. And when we see God at work, we've got to look at the evidence and say, I've got to make a choice here. How are these things being done? It's a question not of if, but of how. And here, the religious leaders concluded that the how was of Satan. And I need you to ask, what have you concluded in your heart about Jesus? Jesus. What have you decided? When you see God doing things among you and in your life or the lives of people around you, what have you decided about God himself? Maybe it's not that it's Satan at work, but maybe you've begun to harden your heart as these scribes have begun to do. Jesus responds to them, and he uses a parable. It says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. You, you can't make this work out. You can't have a military with two generals trying to fight against each other while conquering their foe. It's impossible. It will lead to their destruction. Satan isn't about that. As I mentioned earlier, I love sports. And there are few things that are funner than, than to watch a team that's working together. I cried a little bit this past week when the Chicago Bulls record was broken by the Golden State Warriors. Uh, I'm, I'm a Bull fan. I'm a Warrior fan, but I'm also a record fan, and I love my Bulls. But if you watch this basketball team play, it's very impressive. It's like smooth. It's almost like they're dancing on the floor because they just el- elude defenders. They, they shoot the ball. They move it around like none other because they, they're wearing the same uniform. They're, they're of the same mindset. They're running the same plays. They have the same goal in mind. They're trying to beat the other teams. They're trying to break records, and they want to win a championship. And together, at the end, together, they're going to celebrate in the same locker room. They're not going to win the championship and walk off different parts of the floor and say, all right, that was good, Let's, I'm gone. No, they're, they're in league together. They're united together with the same goal in mind. And Jesus is saying, that's how Satan operates. He's united in his desire for our destruction. And you're putting me on his team with his jersey, running the same plays, with the same championship mindset as Satan? Jesus is saying, That's impossible. See, I'm bringing God glory by the works I'm doing, Jesus is saying, and Satan is never about the glory of God. A kingdom that's divided against itself cannot stand, Jesus says. And the same is true of a house, verse 25. A house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. And then Jesus gives this little parable. He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. You've never heard of someone breaking into the house of an MMA fighter and taking him out. You know, you've got to wrap this dude up with multiple people, tie him up in order to rob his house. And, and Jesus is saying, essentially, Satan is a strong foe. He is a mighty foe. But Jesus is also saying, but notice... I'm here showing my power over Satan. I'm casting out demons. I'm thwarting his plans. If if Satan is a strong man, then what does that say of Jesus who has bound him up? Mighty, stronger, powerful. And so Jesus here gives this illustration and says there's no way I could do what I'm doing unless I'm here by the power of God. Jesus is laying it down for them. And basically he's saying, you've got to make a decision here. But this is where it's painful. Because we see here in the scriptures that their decision was already made up. Their decision was already decided. And this is why Jesus makes this strong warning against those who've hardened their hearts to the point where they resist God and never want to turn to him. He says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. I want to unpack that for us together. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. Guys, this is something that's so beautiful about our God. Because we all have done some dirty stuff in our lives. We've, we've thought some junk in our minds. We've said some things in our, that have exited our mouths, things that we're very much ashamed of. And what we love to preach here at the brook is a God who displays mercy to people like you and me. And here Jesus reaffirms that. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and, and the blasphemies they utter. The word blasphemy means to slander someone. It means to speak out against somebody in a way that's abusive. And Jesus is saying, we can say a lot of things. We can do a lot of things. And there is a God who is merciful toward us. In fact, I think of this, I think of Romans chapter 3, where Paul talks about the human condition and how this is pretty much us. We speak and say slanderous things. There's venom on our lips, Paul says. He's quoting the Old Testament, but he says this there's no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's a serpent. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul says is this is the human condition. It is one of rebellion against God. And so Jesus is saying, in the midst of our rebellion and the blasphemies and the slanderous things we utter, there is still a God who is merciful to forgive. That's comforting. That's comforting for me, and I hope it's comforting for you. But then Jesus, in verse 29, uses the word but, which is a contrast. And so we're saying, all right, Jesus. He said, all sins will be forgiven. Then you add the word but. And so now I'm like, is every sin forgiven, Jesus? What's going on here? He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. What is Jesus speaking of here? What's, what's going on here? Well, Jesus is not talking about blasphemy, these slanderous words in general, but he's, he's narrowing it down and saying that we can speak blasphemous things against God's Holy Spirit. Now, I don't believe this is simply taking God's name in vain. There are many of you, many of us, well, many of, if not all of us, who've done it at different times where we've used God's name carelessly. So God's not saying, now you gotta be afraid because you might not be forgiven. that's, That's not what's going on here. But what is the warning? He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Mark adds these words in verse 30, and he explains what he means. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. This is what I think is going on here, family. The religious leaders in Jesus' day saw undeniably Jesus' miraculous power. They weren't questioning it. They didn't say if he did it. They said, how was he able to do it? And they looked at all the evidence, and they concluded he did it by Satan's power. Jesus here refutes that argument saying, there's no way I could be doing this by Satan's power because that means he would be fighting against himself. So if I'm not fighting by Satan's power, whose power am I fighting by? Not by some human effort. This is supernatural. Jesus is saying the only conclusion is that I am doing what I'm doing by the power of God. This is the undeniable source of Jesus' power. And the scribes heard the argument, saw what took place, and concluded, no. No. It was Satan. They said it was not God's Holy Spirit, but it was an unholy spirit that was at work in Jesus. And Jesus says, when you have hardened your heart to the place where you call evil good and good evil, and there is an undeniable evidence that God is at work, you can harden yourself to the place where you never receive God. You push him away undeniably. Now, this is hard. This is hard to wrap our minds around because, on the other hand, we see God's mercy abound and abound and abound. And so there clearly is something unique at work here that maybe even out of our lead to truly understand. But what we do know is that Jesus was saying that they had made the determination that the Holy Spirit was demonic. And if we see in the Scripture, it is the Holy Spirit who gives us the gift of faith. And if we've concluded he is evil, we've concluded that faith cannot happen to us. Their decision was definite. We saw in chapter 3, verse 6, they wanted to kill Jesus. Not only did it it determine that he was possessed by Satan, but they wanted Jesus dead. Their decision was defiant. They actually verbalized what they were thinking. They didn't keep it to themselves, but they're going around telling everybody he's in league with Satan. He's wearing his jersey. It was definite, it was defiant, but it was also deliberate. You see here in verse 22, it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying. And in Greek, the, word, the words were saying is one word. And it conveys this idea that it was a state of being. This was their continual argument. They had not only made the decision, but they were teaching what they saw. They're pulling people away from Jesus. And Jesus says that they had begun to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And he gives this warning. He has refuted their argument, yet they held to their conclusion. As I was reading this passage, and I'm, I'm thinking the same things probably you're thinking, like, does this happen now? have I done this? Did my family member do this? What, what do we do? Can, is God's mercy good enough? And, and all these questions start swirling through our minds, and I want to get to that, but I want to hold the warning for a moment. I don't want to soften the blow. I want us to understand that God takes his glory seriously. And Jesus was saying, I'm doing this to bring people to myself, to glorify my Father and ultimately accomplish my mission to save people. And God cares about that. And you and I should too. You and I should too. Can we tell if this has happened today? I believe the answer is no. I believe the answer is no, and I'll tell you why. When Jesus was put on a bloody cross... And his cross was put up in the the sky, hands nailed, feet nailed, crown of thorns on his head, tortured body. There were two people alongside of him, one on his right and one on his left. Matthew, in the book of Matthew, tells us that both of the robbers mocked Jesus while Jesus was on the cross. Matthew tells us that In Matthew 27, verse 44, that both thieves mocked Jesus. But Luke tells us in chapter 23, verse 40, that one of the thieves began to come to his senses on the cross. And though he previously mocked Jesus, now he was on the cross and realized, this man does not deserve what he's getting. And he tells the other thief who kept his mocking, don't you understand? You and I deserve this death. We have the, are the rebellious ones. He is innocent. And he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, will you remember me when you enter your kingdom today? And Jesus tells this man, who had nothing to offer, couldn't even put his hands down. But Jesus knew he had faith. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. We see in the scripture that there has never been a person who has sought forgiveness who did not receive it. As long as we have breath in our lungs, there is opportunity for repentance. How that squares away with the warning, I don't know fully. But I do know that there is times that we harden heart, that people harden their hearts and resist God to the death. I think of Pharaoh in Egypt who time and time again saw God at work and refused to submit to him. I think of a story that Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, which means a defender of the faith, he tells there was a British journalist named Malcolm Mudridge that was doing a documentary on the life of Joseph Stalin, that great atheistic Soviet Union revolutionary who killed over 3 million people during the World War II. And Muggridge, uh, as he was preparing for this documentary, he interviewed Joseph Stalin's daughter, Svetlana. And Zacharias tells this story. He taught with Muggridge himself, who relayed the story to Zacharias. And he says this, that Stalin's daughter was present with her father as he was dying. And he was on his deathbed, one who denied the existence of God and one who denied the value of people and put $3 to death, it says that at the end of his life, in his final breaths, he sat up in his bed, shook his fist at the God he denied, laid back down, and died. And we see here just this eeriness of a man who hardened his heart and rejected God and even denied God's existence until the moment of his death where he acknowledged God's existence only to shake his fist at him. And we we hear stories of those who hated God, and we hear stories of those who hated God, but on their deathbed or on their death cross, so to speak, put their faith in him. And so as we read Jesus' warning here, we're holding these tensions together. That The the scribes in Jesus' day had almost crossed this line, and while on the other hand, God says that there is mercy given to all of us as long as there's breath in our lungs. And ultimately, family, we don't know the hearts of others. And so as long as there is breath in their lungs, we declare the good news of Jesus. We tell people about Jesus to the day that they die in hopes that they would repent of their sin, even if it were as the, cross, the thief on the cross did. You see, in 2 Peter verses. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, Peter talks about the fact that Jesus is coming back one day. And we don't know when it's going to take place. And some people look at that and say, God, you're really dragging on this. It's been some 2,000 years, or in Peter's day, it's been about 70 years since you left Jesus. You said you were coming back. God, you're, just, you're too slow. And what Peter tells us and what we need to hear is that God is not a God who is slow to act, but a God who is quick to show mercy. 2 Peter 3 8 through 9, Peter says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But hear this, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that it all should reach repentance. We serve a God who wants to see people enter into his kingdom through faith in Jesus and turning from their sins. So Jesus' warning is not a call for us to put on the brakes in sharing our faith. I believe Jesus' warning here is a call for us to understand the severity of sin and to steer us away from letting our hearts become hardened. So Jesus here has shown his power, and we've got to come to conclusions. What is the source of Jesus' power? How is God changing lives today? The 13 people who've got baptized in the past month who said how Jesus changed them, how does God do that? Is it through the power of Satan? Or is it through the power of God? And if it's by the power of God, then that means God has a demand for your life and he's calling you to surrender to him. I believe this passage should make our hearts ache for those who keep pushing God away. And it should cause us to keep going back to them and say we serve a God who's patient, but don't test his patience because you don't know when you'll breathe your last. It should give us an urgency. And lastly, I think... This passage should give us comfort. And this is why. Satan is strong, but a strong man has entered his house and bound him up in order to free those who were slaves to him. You see, the Garden of Eden, when Satan as a serpent deceived Adam and Eve, sin entered the world, and when sin entered the world, so did death. And because death is the result of our sin, and that's what God's wrath does, it brings death, because we now are unholy. God is holy. We deserve eternal separation. Satan's lies brought about murder and death. And he holds us bondage to that sin. In fact, even in Hebrews Chapter 2, verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a human. Why? That through death he might destroy the one, that's Satan, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus is, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that Satan... Not only has brought about sin through the temptation of Adam and Eve, but now holds death over our head as a source of fear. Because we know that apart from Jesus, we deserve eternal separation from God. But this is why Jesus came to the earth. To go into Satan's house, as it were, according to the parable. Bind him up to set free the captives that he wanted to hold in bondage to free us from God's wrath that we deserve, to free us from the sin that holds us in in, uh, shackles, and to free us from our impending eternal death. And when we put our faith in Jesus and believe that he died for us, the Bible says we receive forgiveness, that we no longer will die eternally but raised to eternal life with God, and we no longer are objects of God's wrath but now children of God adopted into his family. So this passage, although there's a deep warning, I think there's a great comfort for those who are children of God that there is nothing that Satan the straw man can do to hold you out against God. Jesus has shown his victory over him and ultimately did so by going to the cross. There is an undeniable source of Jesus' power, and it was God himself because Jesus is God in human flesh. And as we see him at work then and through the Bible and in our lives now, he's calling you to surrender your life to him. He's calling you who are children of God to go out and declare this good news, that there is one who is greater than Satan. There's one who has freed us from sin. And let us go forth passionate about God's glory, having a like-minded hatred for sin, loving what is good and hating what is evil. It's God's word for us today, family. Let's give him glory with our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to this passage and and feel the weight of this warning, God, um, we also feel the freedom that there is through Jesus. And God, as we hold these tensions together, we want to live for you. We want to honor you with our lives. We want to take sin serious. We also want to celebrate Jesus who is greater and more powerful than any other. Lord, again, if there are any here today who do not know you, who have pushed you away, God, I pray that you would continue to work in their hearts. God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, that today might even be a day of salvation. For others who are walking in fear, who are walking, just stumbling, God, I pray that they would come to you name. Amen. I forgot to mention something that's worth revisiting uh, before I invite our prayer team to come up.